electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The sell-off in stocks, the virus surging, the stimulus fizzling, the most critical week of earnings now looming. What is the best place for your money? We debate that this hour with our investment committee. Joining me today are Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal, John Najeri, and Shannon Sakosha is the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. We do begin, of course, with this drop for stocks. Investors grappling now with the rapid spread of the virus. The election is looming. Mega cap tech earnings this week. There is your market picture. The Dow right now is down 733 points. That's more than two and a half percent. S&P down more than two percent. The Nasdaq down about one and three quarters percent. And again, that very much in focus because of those earnings that are looming. Joe Terranova, you first. S&P today could close below its 50 day for the first time in a few weeks. You've got Dr. Gottlieb on Squawk this morning saying the U.S. is at a, quote, tipping point. You've got the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, at the White House. We're not going to control the pandemic. You've got no stimulus. And I'm asking you, is this mountain now getting too steep to climb for the market? Well, without stimulus, the answer to that unequivocally is yes. Rising virus cases need more stimulus. Um, Clearly, there has been over the last couple of weeks a modest broadening out of the rally within the market. But it's really been all about industrials, Scott. Industrials trading to uh, an all-time high as a sector. But why is that? It's on the belief that there would be stimulus. Consumer discretionary, ex-Amazon, trading towards its highest levels. Once again, why is that? Because there's monetary support in the form of stimulus. So it just highlights how important stimulus is You need this mosaic of coordination to respond to the virus, and any incident of rising virus cases lends itself to the evidence that you have to bring forth more stimulus. If you don't, you get a red tape like today. And, Shan, um, it's a big reason why perhaps Can Accords' Tony Dwyer says, quote, we continue to believe there's no near-term edge for the reason that there's a lack of a near-term edge with our tactical indicators firmly in no man's land, he says. Very uncertain election, COVID-19 outlook. So, you know, pick it up where we left off with Joe. What what's in store here? How are we supposed to navigate a increasingly uncertain environment? There was a lot of enthusiasm this summer, Scott. We saw people um, going into consumer names, uh, you know, brick and mortar retail, some of the travel names, cruises, airlines. Um, We've seen the TSA reporting that we've had uh, declining passenger counts over the last couple of days. That hasn't happened in months. And what we're seeing is that, you know, I think everybody was pointing to the fact that we're not going to see large scale lockdowns, but we are seeing localized pulling back on some of that reopening. We're seeing behavioral response. You're seeing some of these retail numbers over the last couple of weeks. People are pulling their shopping ahead because they're concerned about what's going to happen November, December, January. I mean, aside from the election, it's just kind of an economic backdrop that seems uncomfortable for people. The stimulus package was a done deal, we thought, in mid-August. We're not going to get it. We're going to see um, meaningful impacts from the fact that we're not seeing those extended unemployment benefits. A lot of those jobs that were added in hospitality in areas like New England, when it was nice outside, those people are going to lose their jobs again because we're not going to be able to eat outside anymore. So this third wave of the coronavirus and the second wave of job losses is coming. And I agree with Joe. We need this stimulus. We needed it weeks ago. Yeah. John, um, I think Shannon nails it. Um, Frankly, you're not going to get widespread lockdowns, despite the fact that you've got record number 
uh, uh, numbers of cases now, right? More than 80,000 you did over, over the weekend. And to the idea of consumers pulling back their own behavior to impact the recovery and thus impacting the market, Bespoke says today, for seven straight days now, the total number of daily passengers on U.S. airlines have been lower than the same day a week before. That's the second longest streak of consecutive daily week, week declines since the start of the pandemic. That seems to say it all about how the consumer is the one that's going to be relied on more so than any widespread lockdown or anything else. Yes, yeah, Scott. And, uh, you know, all of us have talked, you know, for weeks about how, you know, Congress uh, both sides, House and Senate, are playing God here with the consumer. I mean, you know, they know they need the stimulus. They know that there are 22 million Americans that really need the stimulus, Scott. Forget about the businesses just for a moment. But those consumers have needed it since it ended in July. And they've basically turned a blind eye to that. Uh, both houses, again, uh, have turned a blind eye to that. One side asking for 3.4 trillion initially coming down to two. The other side not budging off of that one trillion, even though the Treasury Secretary was pushing for 1.8. I mean, you know, eventually, Scott, when you're teasing the dragon like this, something bad happens like exactly this. The combination of people not willing to get on airplanes, people not willing to go out. Um, that is because of the virus. We know that. But uh, we knew that this was coming as far as the consumer needed some help here. And then small businesses needed some help. And they played politics with it, Scott. And God help them if they can't stop it once it starts tumbling. Because, again, once you get momentum in a direction as strong as today, it's really hard to break that fever, if you will, Scott. It's hard to break that fever. Yep. And, you know, so what's that mean? Does that mean that the, uh, the Fed has to step back in and do a twist or do some other measure since the Congress can't or won't, I think that's likely, Scott. We kept hearing, though, John, that, you know, I mean, the market seemed to be somewhat content with the fact that y it was believing we were going to get stimulus at some point, whether it was before the election yep. or after the election, you're going to get stimulus. So the market had been been going up. What hadn't been going up at such a rapid clip, even though it was escalating, was the virus. And now you got 80 yes. plus thousand cases a day. The chief of staff over the weekend saying what he did about we're not going to control the pandemic. You know, the market, Jim, is grappling now with this. And it leads me back to my initial question to Joe as to whether you're starting to build a mountain that is too high to get over, at least in the near term. And the answer is yes. I think we're all saying this. I think we should also define the mountain as macroeconomic events because there's another mountain that the markets should be scaling with ease, which is earnings. You know, we're 30% through the S&P 500 so far and 80% plus of those companies reporting have beat on both the top and bottom lines. So this isn't an issue about earnings. And I know this is a very big week, but earnings aren't the story. Now, the, the biggest part of the macroeconomic mountain is the fiscal stimulus. I'm, I'm going to make a prediction here. I can't back it up other than this just makes common sense. When you get past the election, I think the cost of stimulus from a political perspective goes down close to zero. You're as far away from the next election as you possibly can. I would expect uh, Congress to get its act together immediately after the election and pass something. There's no, there's no fiscal cost to it, not with interest rates where they are, and the political cost will be close to zero. So it's kind of a hang on, both for fiscal stimulus and the election, hang on for the next week and a half and get us past next Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, you see what's happening in the market right now. Dow's at the lows of the day. Stocks are clearly sliding today. Let's bring in Brian Belsky now. He's the chief investment officer at BMO. Uh, Brian, welcome back. Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm all right. Is this all about the, the virus numbers? Well, you know, your group did a wonderful preamble. And I'll have to throw props, of course, to my Minnesota brother, Mr. Najarian, in terms of politicians playing God with respect to what's happening to Americans. I think it's just terrible. And with respect to building credibility uh, and consistency for this, for this market rally, they're doing nothing. And I think that really speaks to, Scott, why investors should not, I repeat, should not be basing their investment decisions 
on politics, period. And so what does that mean? There's this huge debate on a daily basis on what you should be buying, growth versus value versus cyclicals versus small cap versus large cap. How about just buying really great companies? And I know that sounds kind of simplistic, but there's kind of three parts to growth, Scott, right? So there's secular growth, structural growth, and cyclical growth. And you can find those in some value areas, but you can find those mostly in growth areas. I mean, let's face it. We are an economy and a stock market and a country that's in recovery mode. We're moving from despair to hope. And during when that happens, historically coming out of recession and coming out of a bear market, growth works, period. So when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. And I think that's the biggest issue that people are struggling with. With respect to the, the near-term gyrations in the market, listen, we're in a momentum market. Momentum works in both directions. We're feeling that negative direction right now. And that's why I think we're in this batten down the hatch mode. And, oh, by the way, the volatility and the fear and the rhetoric, you know as well as I do, and your four awesome people on the panel know this, it's just starting for the next two weeks. Yeah. Are you sticking with 36.50 on the S&P for the end of the year? Great question. And, yes, we are. And, and the reason is, is Jim kind of talked about this uh, in, his, in his preamble. I mean, I think it, regardless of what happens after the election, wonderful point that we're the furthest away that we can be from from the next election i think that that makes the green light go much more possible with respect to stimulus and i would i would expect they're going to get it right and finally do something yeah what, what do you do about these cases of the virus that are rising dramatically and consumer behavior which may pull back in uh, in a similar fashion well again you kind of go back in terms of the, our whole theme is from chaos to coexist from chaos to coexist. If you think about what we were enduring as a country and as a society back in February, March, when we were learning about uh, remdesivir and epidemiology and masks and social distancing, we know all those things now, right? We can cope with them and coexist with them a lot more. So, so from a from a st- from a standardized basis, comparing the two periods, we don't think that they're that they're similar. And I'm not a doctor, but I'm I'm, I'm a creature in a, in a study of history and with respect to what happens in markets. But I do think this, Scott. I think that clearly this is scary. Clearly, clearly the caseload's a, a lot about testing. Mortality rates as a percentage are down dramatically. And I think if we come out with a plan, no matter who it is, left, right, center, come out with a defined plan and how we're going to protect our people and move forward from this and instill faith in the American people, that's what we need from everyone. Right. But, I mean, in the near term, we're not going to get that plan. We, we know that. No. Right. No, we're not. That's why the markets are the way they are. And that's why we continue to debate this, because we're, we're thirsting, we're hungry for this. So, so as an investor, that's why you have to default to quality and quality growth. As, as a human being, that's why you have to default to faith and live your life. Well, that, that raises the issue, though. When you say quality growth, that's, that says to me, OK, then I'm just going to rely on <clears throat> I'm going to dance with what, you know, what got me here. And that's big cap tech. Does that raise the bar now of how important this week truly is? Because all of those companies are reporting this week. Another great point. And I think, too, that it's all about earnings, right? And from a fundamental perspective, I think that we've forgotten how to be a fundamental investor, whether or not it's a theme or a company or a valuation or a background or a product or service. And that's why when you take a look at Amazon and Apple, I think, to me, are the keys this week. I've said it on your show before. As the market goes, so goes Apple, and as Apple goes, so goes the market. Those are the really key things. But I think you're downplaying other important themes in technology like PayPal or NVIDIA. These stocks have been monsters and are really in the process of transitioning from more structural growth into secular growth like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Those would be your secular growth themes. And I'd be watching those I'm sorry, structural growth themes and how they continue to really lead. The problem is, you know what was another structural uh, growth theme? <clears throat> Software and the cloud. And then I got SAP's bomb drop today, and now I'm watching all of those stocks, Brian, sell off en masse, wondering what that means to the overall tech picture, even with someone like Jim Cramer, um, who knows these stocks more than anybody, suggests it's a SAP-specific story rather than a structural story of some kind in the space, yet all of those stocks are selling off. And they were a key theme on the way up. The Adobe's, the Snowflakes and the IPO, which was wildly successful, Workdays and Cloudflare and ServiceNow and Salesforce. Well, I think, you know, from a fundamental perspective, Jim may be right, especially on the SAP side. And that's why the market is a market of stock. And that's why it's so important not to get sucked into this momentum. Adobe's got a different product than SAP. A CRM is going to be even more important going forward as we're all working from home and we've got to log all of our meetings and do all of this in terms of, of keeping track of what we're doing. It's going to be really, really important. So, again, it might be stock-specific, but that's why 
that's why you, you live by the sword and die by the sword in these momentum areas, and that's why I'm not surprised to see that cloud area getting hit as much as it is today. Yeah, Brian, we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate you coming to the phone for us on this big day in the market. Brian Belsky with BMO. Be well. Take care. All right. Shan, all right, put this week into perspective then. Um, how important now do these events today, in context of everything else that's going on, the virus, the election looming, these tech earnings? Critical. Um, as you said, I, I think that investors want to be in equities. We, we want to be in equities going into 2021. We've talked about the tailwinds of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Maybe we need more fiscal stimulus. That's fine. We'll get some now. We'll get some in infrastructure next year. But investors want to be in equities. Bonds are unattractive. They're not earning anything. And so in order to stay invested in equities, the safest place over the last six months has been in big tech. And that's why we've seen the gains. And so if you start to take away that option for investors this week, if we get some disappointing earnings, um, and I don't even want to start get started on the cloud because I, I think we're going to talk about that, but if we get some disappointing earnings, that's going to create even more concern that investors are, are going to see no place to go, no real alternative for them during this uncertainty. That's going to go to cash. We could see some flows into treasuries. But for most clients, what they're earning in bonds is not going to make the, the, the gains that they need into next year. It's not going to pay for their income. And so I think that this is an, an important time as an advisor to make sure your clients understand where their allocation is, make sure it's balanced appropriately. But this is important to keep people in the market into next year, which we anticipate will be a much better year for equity investors. Joe, I bet. I mean, look, you, you've got tomorrow, you've got Microsoft and AMD. Thursday, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, and Twitter. I wonder if you can make a case that the most important earnings report of the week may be AMD because of the way that that stock has performed. I know people think that might be crazy, but I would almost, I'd be surprised if these other big, big mega caps didn't do well. But given how much AMD has gone up and how much it separated itself from Intel, you cannot have a bad report or a disappointment in any way from AMD. I don't disagree with that, but I think the stock that will matter most this week is the one that's able to reverse the trend, which has been strong earnings performance, but yet poor price performance subsequent to that report. Which stock is actually going to come out and have the type of post-earnings response like we witnessed in July? Will it be a Microsoft that will post a strong quarter and rally subsequent to that? I think that's what's incredibly important right now when looking at the market. And I think it also underscores collectively that you should not be moving away from these growth stocks into these value stocks. S&P value is still below its June high. If there was some form of this economic burgeoning on the virus dissipating, a vaccine coming, why wouldn't financials, why wouldn't energy, why wouldn't airlines rally? It's been all about industrials. That's the reason that it's going higher. And I would offer, Scott, why if there is weakness this week, why wouldn't they? I, I mean, I read you, that I gave you the airline note from Bespoke, right? I mean, there's a reason why the airlines aren't, aren't going to rally, and that's because there's just not enough demand. Well, one week ago today, we were talking about airlines having the single biggest uh, capacity day with, I think there was a, a million, yeah, a million people, people passed through flew. TSA. Okay, well, that's great. And we got, we got, we got, listen, we, we got very excited about that, myself included, and we've trended down ever since. So I understand that. There's no evidence to suggest that there is any form of an economic recovery that you could invest around right now. So, Jim Labenthal, maybe I should have addressed this question to you in my comment that, you know, I'd be surprised if the, 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 the big dogs in, in the earnings reports this week disappointed. You're expecting them to disappoint? No, I'm not sure how you got that at all. I'm, I'm not sure if the I'm looking at the said notes that, here. It says, no, Jim, look. he owns Microsoft, he owns Apple, he owns Alphabet. Quote, I'm expecting these stocks to disappoint. Nope, that's not hmm. accurate. So obviously there was a miscommunication there. Hmm. I own those stocks. I'm perfectly comfortable with them. Let me be more specific, though, okay. to your question. You know, there is a difference between those names and AMD. You're talking about stocks that have forward multiples around 30. 
AMD, NVIDIA, those guys, they have forward multiples around 60, 70. So, yeah, there is some risk in AMD. Just like there's been risk in those software stocks that trade at, you know, those same numbers but multiples of sales. So I, I'm not expecting anything bad from the big tech. I think they're appropriately priced for this interest rate. But if I, if I may, I'd like to make a, a secondary point that I think is important, and Joe is touching on it with industrials. You know, you've got Caterpillar reporting tomorrow morning. That stock's been on a tear. It darn well better not disappoint. And Ford is on Wednesday. You know, auto production has been going pretty well. Ford better not disappoint. Um, you, you, you don't want those secondary areas of the market falling out and leaving tech perched all by itself. John, what's the most important earnings report this week? Um... Overall, Scott, I think Microsoft um, and, you know, Microsoft went after, for instance, Slack, symbol work uh, in a big way. Uh, they go after everybody who has something successful and then they make it either better or they just make it part of a package. That's what Satya Nadella has continued to do, Scott, is basically um, cobble on those things that people thought, you know, whether it's a customer relationship management, whether it's. Um, some way of communicating or the LinkedIn. I think that is why Microsoft is so important this week. But And so I'd say Microsoft. To Jim's point, we've seen a lot of alternative data that indicates that Caterpillar, although they've had a great quarter, Jim, um, and since 9-11, uh, September 11th, they're up a little over 10%, I think. There's a lot of worry about the deliveries, about the amount of uh, road graders and their heavy equipment that's coming out of Peoria, Illinois. I mean, there's a lot of worry right there right now, Scott. So the alt data says that they are not going to impress. Instead, they're going to depress with what they bring out. But I think, to Jim's point, that might be the time to buy them. So as far as I'm comfortable holding Microsoft like Jim is, I'm looking for an entry into Caterpillar at lower prices here, Scott. And, of course, um, Apple... Amazon, I mean, both those stocks are barely nicked today because there's just so much momentum behind them. I mean, you can obviously, Shannon, understand why tech continues to get a bit, even though today is a, a rough day, uh, because if you're talking about economic performance and the comeback and virus numbers going up, you go back to the stocks that got you here in the first place. Microsoft is your largest position. So, I mean, does that does that say Absolutely. that you just think it's the, the most important report of the week because it's your biggest position? Or is there another stock that's going to be reporting this week that you're more focused on? It's, it, it is my biggest position. So I'd say for, for our clients, it's obviously the most important. Um, I think that there, you know, we've talked a lot about um, Apple being the sort of the bellwether of the fangs over the course of the last couple of months. And with the new release of the phones, um, you know, you're getting um, some good data, hopefully, from this earnings call about how successful the, the 12 launch has been. Um, and just to drive home the importance of the 12 launch, it's not just that people are upgrading their handsets. They're upgrading their handsets to a platform that can support more wearables and more services, which is what Apple is trying to sell us as the new story. And so in as much as for, for me, for my portfolios, Microsoft is probably most impactful. I think Apple, if there is continued strength on the consumer on that side, because we're concerned about this consumer weakness in other parts of the market, particularly in hardline retail, I'm looking at Apple to say we could get a nice boost if there's indications that the 12 rollout has been has been met with success thus far. So Joe, why don't you tell me with a week from tomorrow, the election, just how you're thinking about the overall market right here today going in. As David Costin says, we expect the S&P 500 is going to rise around 10% by mid-2021, and earnings will grow at an annualized pace of 13% through 24, regardless of who wins. Also said, don't worry about a higher capital gains tax. I mean, everybody's trying to game what the uh, different outcome of the election is going to mean for, for tax policy and, and the market. How are we thinking about that in the context of everything else we just discussed? Well, we're, we're, we're trying to get to the point where we have clarity on what the formation of this government will actually look like, what the stimulus will actually be. Um, this is a very big earnings week, as we're discussing here in the last couple of minutes. I'm not necessarily sure that earnings and very strong earnings from a Microsoft and Apple or an Amazon are going to be enough to provide investors clarity for a week that is going to be presenting itself with an election and the absence of this stimulus. Scott, 10 days from now, are we going to be talking in Washington, D.C. about 
providing consumers with stimulus, or are we going to be talking about the contesting of an election? That is the concern that I think is right-minded to be having right now, uh, and I think we're facing in the next couple of weeks elevated volatility until we can get to the other side and get clarity. Markets don't like the absence of clarity, and I think, unfortunately, we're just in a period where it's going to be difficult to achieve that. So uh, it sounds to me like you then ag you know, agree with the commentary from Dwyer about this no-man's land mm -hmm. that you're in for another week. I, I I, I do, and, and, and I, you know, I, just placing it in terms of statistical context, again, on September 2nd, the S&P made its high. Apple's down 15% from there. Microsoft's down about 8%. Amazon's down about 8%. The market traded all the way down to 3209. We've got a nice bounce back. It's been on industrials. It's not a broad-based expansion. It's not the time to rotate into value. And I'm not necessarily sure if you're ever going to be able to elevate above that 3588 until you get clarity from Washington, D.C., even if you're able to get from mega cap technology strong earnings and a strong subsequent earnings price performance. So, Shannon, then, is the best strategy to sit and do nothing for the next seven days? I think if you came into this period at the end of September and you like the holdings that you have, I think there's no there's no point in trying to trade around what's going to happen in the next seven days. Um, you could try to look for opportunities in healthcare. You could take some weakness in tech. Um, if there is a, a stock that you have a price target on that you know hits that price target, you can add it here. But a large scale rotation is unnecessary at this time. I agree with Joe. Um, there's no evidence that there's any strength outside of the industrials and perhaps the material space on the value side. Um, and you know, frankly, um, there is, you know, there is likely to be opportunities on the back side of this to be able to reposition your portfolios for a different viewpoint for next year. And so as, in as much as we, you know, we hate to say sit on your hands, um, you know, at, at, you know, anything that you're doing here is going to be to try to tactically play an election that's just a few days away. And the market could go against you very quickly if, you know, if you make the wrong choice. This isn't even necessarily, Joe, about trying to play the election. It's about just trying to play anything in a week that, as you said, could just bring so many different potential outcomes over the next 10 days. Yet you bought a company called a stock called Sensata and you sold Capital One. Tell us why. Well, keeping to my word last Wednesday when you and I had the conversation about uh, the auto trade being in the early innings and the derivative component of that, I mentioned Sensata at the time. I did the research surrounding it, and I believe that Sensata, which is currently priced in the mid-40s, is a stock that can move into uh, the, the mid to upper uh, 50s at some point. Capital One is a classic example of a company, in particular for financial institutions, that's reporting earnings, and subsequent to that is having poor price performance. And I need to see specifically, as it relates to new investments in the financial sector, I want strong earnings, and I want subsequent to that a strong price performance. I did not get that from Capital One. I was disappointed. I took the position, and I eliminated yeah, it. Yeah, tough day for uh, shares of uh, COF, uh, down 4.5%. All right, we'll take a quick break. Check out this mystery chart. It's a red-hot retail stock. It surged 55% in six months. Now, today, a bullish call on it from the number one retail analyst in that space. We debate it in our call of the day. And a reminder... You can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. In El Paso, Texas, an auxiliary hospital has been set up in that city's convention center. Officials say COVID-19 hospitalizations have almost tripled in the last three weeks. El Paso County has instituted a nightly curfew and residents are being urged to stay home for the next two weeks. 
In Britain, Navy commandos were called in to take back control of this tanker and bring it safely to harbor. Seven stowaways have been arrested after threatening the crew in a suspected hijacking. Here at home, the CDC is investigating a deadly listeria outbreak, possibly tied to deli meat. At least 10 cases have been reported in Florida, Massachusetts and New York. All were hospitalized and one person died. The source of that listeria outbreak has not yet been identified. And take a look at those guys. Those are in Los Angeles. Those are the Compton Cowboys. They're riding their horses to drop off their ballots. More than 50 Compton Cowboys saddled up to encourage inner city residents to vote in this year's election. You're up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. I appreciate that, Sue. Thank you, Sue Herrera. Lululemon added today to the focus list at J.P. Morgan. It's the top retail analyst in the space, Matt Boss. His price target, 415 bucks, 25 percent upside from current levels. Joe, um, you own this. So, again, this is not like anything late from Boss or whatever. He's had an outperform on the stock uh, or overweight. He just reiterates it. He bumps the price target, though. 25%. It's worth noting that over the past few months, this stock has dramatically underperformed Nike and Under Armour. It it certainly has. Um, 399 was the high early in September. It pulled back significantly, actually got below uh, 300. Next earnings report is going to be in December. What's clear about this company, though, is the fundamental momentum that they continue to possess. Yes, we know stores are constrained in their ability to contribute specifically on a margin basis, But there are other things evolving here with Lulu that keeps the growth story intact. International remains very, very strong. They have momentum there. They're opening 30 to 35 stores uh, in the year outside, specifically in China. Clearly, the product offering is expanding for women and for men. And you're talking about a company that's achieved 157% e-commerce growth in 2020. And they're doing that largely just on the brand recognition that they have and the distinctive advantage they have over its competitors. So I agree with Matt. I think at some point you will get back above 400. You might endure a little market-related volatility in the interim. But what's going to be incredibly important for the holiday season is that earnings report that you're going to get in December. Yeah. Shan, I want to get your comment on it, but I've just noticed right now the Dow is now down by more than 800 points. It's a loss of about 8.03. If we could pull up the major averages and just show you, we're hanging around a little more than an 800-point decline. The NASDAQ is on the cusp of a 2% decline as it slides by more than 200 points. And the S&P 500 down by 2.3%. That's a loss of 79.5 points. You could point to any number of issues if you want. The uh, lack of a stimulus bill, uh, the rapidly escalating rise in the number of of virus cases that has investors certainly on edge. The lockdowns over in Europe, wondering what the trajectory of the virus is going to be here, along with hospitalizations and, of course, uh, deaths as it relates to uh, to COVID. Uh, All right, Shan, well, we'll back to the conversation we were having. Um, And maybe we reflexively discuss Lulu in context of Nike and Under Armour. Maybe that's not even the best way to look at it. You know, I I don't know. you know, they're obviously different companies all, all together. But what about the idea, though, that yeah. if you do that and you try and make the comparison of late, I know year to date, there's nothing to complain about Lulu's gains. But more recently, they've been more muted. And I'm wondering why. I think this has just been a rotation within retail. I mean, we sat here last week and we're talking about L brands and Gap and, you know, looking for value, quote unquote, in the hardline retail space and specialty retail. Um, I actually, you know, I probably like Lulu more now than I did, um, you know, in the middle of August because, you know, there isn't really a trade down opportunity from Lulu. Um, demographically, the recession um, has supported, you know, higher earners who continue to be the, the primary customer customers of, of Lulu. Um, and so I think if you're looking at, uh, you know, a large scale consumer play and a consumer recovery next year, something like Under Armour probably offers you a bit more value. But in the near term, a name like Lulu is likely to contract less if we get 
evidence of this um, even modest pullback in consumer spending. But I would cite what um, Joe just talked about, and that's international. I think that's an important piece here because all of us were looking at the relative success of Europe being able to combat COVID-19 just a couple of months ago. And now that seems to have flipped. And so I think watching the international markets, they're more likely, obviously, to put lockdowns back into place. And so some of these consumer brands, you could see an opportunity to buy those on some of this weakness in their European sales. All right. We will uh, step away again. Dow's down more than 800 points. We have your latest ETFs trades amid the sell-off. Next, we uh, go to break, uh, take a look at the major averages uh, one more time. There it is, a uh, loss of near 3% for the Dow, uh, two and a third for the S&P. NASDAQ's down about 2%. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. And welcome back, Bob Pisani here. We are near the lows for the day. Dow Jones Industrial Average down about 800 points. Joining me right now, Burton Malkiel, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Princeton University, author of the legendary book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Professor, thanks very much for joining us today. I wanted to ask you about ESG, but I've got to start with the markets. You pioneered the idea that stocks tend to follow a, a random walk, but the markets seem to be reacting today very much to stimulus or the lack thereof and the reopening story. Can you give us your perceptions of what the markets might be doing going into the end of the year? What should investor be doing right now? Well, first of all, in terms of a random walk, uh, the idea is that the market moves on news and true news is something that you can't predict uh, from the past. So the fact that we are now... Uh, uh, running toward a new peak uh, in uh, coronavirus uh, 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 deaths and uh, not so much deaths as, uh, uh, as basically diagnoses. Uh, and uh, uh, this was uh, perhaps not anticipated. Uh, that's what makes markets move. And I don't think you can predict yeah. this. And I don't think... Uh, uh, it's possible to do that. Uh, what we know is that eventually uh, we're going to have treatments, we're going to have a vaccine. Uh, eventually, we are going to have stimulus, uh, maybe not before the election, uh, maybe not before even a new administration, but uh, it'll happen. Uh, and basically, investors should sit tight because don't yeah. try... You know to predict what's going to happen, you won't be able to do it. Let me pick up on that. You know, we debate growth versus value every day here. We debate small cap versus big cap. We debate momentum versus low volatility. We do this every day. Your central thesis is essentially that you can't beat the markets long term, stay with index funds. Has anything happened this year that makes you change that thesis? Does any of this factor investing, value over growth, small cap over big cap, low vol over momentum, is there any indication that that still matters long term? Or should you, as you suggest, basically still stick with index? Index funds. 
absolutely, you should stick with index funds. Uh, growth and value, for example, uh, at the beginning of the year, so many pundits were saying value is cheaper relative to growth than ever before. Uh, and what happened is that growth trounced value. Again, you can't do it. There is at some point value is going to trounce growth. I don't know when, but at some point it will. And don't try to do it if you're in an index fund. You've got growth and value. You've got If it's a broad-based index fund, you've got small cap and large cap. You'll never be able to predict when one is going to be in the ascendancy, and you're much better off to just be broadly indexed in a very low-cost index fund. All right, Professor, we got to let you go. We've got 20 seconds. You wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, very critical of ESG. That's a very big part of ETF investing right now. 20 seconds. Could you just tell us what your concern is about ESG right now? Because it's growing my rapidly. Cons my concern is I don't know what's a good company and what's a bad company, and neither does anybody else. Is the utility that burns coal a bad company because it burns coal? Or is it a good company because it's doing an enormous amount of investing in wind power? Do I feel good about an ETF uh, that uh, basically has Facebook and uh, Visa and MasterCard within the top uh, 10 uh, when they charge exorbitant interest rates to poor investors? I don't know that an, any ESG broad-based fund uh, is really one that makes me feel confident that I'm investing in really good companies. Okay. Professor, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. And we're going to talk with Professor Malkiel a lot more on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern time, etfedge.cnbc.com, about ESG, the random walk theory, and whether value will finally outperform growth after 10 years of underperformance. All that at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Scott, back to you. Hi, right, Bob. Appreciate that. Perfect segue, too, for our next guest. Value investor Bill Nygren of Oakmark joins us next. We talk his latest stock buys and sells, one certainly at iRazor. You have to wait to uh, see that when we're back in just 30 seconds. We stick with the markets now. Our next guest concerned that some of the valuations we're seeing in tech are reminiscent of 1999. Let's bring in Bill Nygren. He manages the Oakmark Fund, joins us live from Chicago. Hope you've been well. Welcome back. Joining you from beautiful, snowy Chicago today. Yeah, well, the weather is definitely taking a turn this way uh, as well, but it's good to have you back. And really what raises my interest, I think, more than anything is something that you've sold over what you've bought uh, because of the broader statement you think you're, you're making about where we are. That's Pinterest. Um, it's just one of those, you know, high-growth, high high-valuation tech stocks that have had a tremendous run. Why did you sell it? Well, uh, to, to us, the reason why we sell it is, is only, you can only figure that out when you know why you bought it. We bought Pinterest uh, in March, the stock had been trading in the 30s, and it fell to a low of about 11. Uh, had $3 of cash on the balance sheet, and we didn't think that the pandemic should cause a two-thirds reduction in the price of Pinterest. The stock then went from, I think it hit a low of about 10, uh, to today it's trading at about $50 a share. So it's at five times the price it was in March. We don't think any less of the business Pinterest than we did in March. In fact, we've gotten even more comfortable with it. But as a value investor, price matters. And at five times the price it was just seven months ago, to us it no longer looks superior to a lot of traditional businesses that we can buy that haven't fared as well in the past seven months. You're sounding like you're saying that about a broader swath, though, of the market, right? And it's reminding you of a painful period for investors. Well, I was glad to hear Professor Malkiel say in the last segment that with certainty there will be a period that value will outperform again. Because uh, the last four years it's kind of felt like we're on the cusp and then it just never happens. But I think that what we've seen in the change in P.E. ratios of the cheapest stocks compared to the fastest growers is really instructive of the risk that uh, growth investors are taking today. 
Four years ago, the cheapest 100 stocks out of the Russell 1000 were selling at something like 13 times earnings, and the ra most rapid 75 growers were selling in the upper 30s. Today, the cheapest stocks have actually gotten cheaper. They've gone from 13 to 11 times, but the growth stocks have gone from the upper 30s to about 100 times. That spread of 100 times versus 11 is reminiscent of where the market was in the late 90s when the dot-com bubble had made so many small businesses with real high valuations become large-cap stocks. And we're dealing with that now in the Oakmark Fund where people are asking why we're buying more mid-cap stocks than we used to. We, we aren't changing what we do at all. We've always bought big businesses, fundamentally large, sales, income, shareholders, equity, but they're being displaced in the large cap universe today by small companies with very high valuations. Whether you think growth or value is likely to win over the next year, I think it's really important for investors to recognize that that large cap universe, the risk profile is changing as some big businesses are dropping out and these like late stage venture cap companies that have come public at very high prices are now in the large cap universe. It's not as low risk as people think of when they think of large cap. But what if I, you know, would, would push back and say, well, the reason why a Pinterest did as well as it has done, the reason why Zoom is up 650% uh, year to date and Levon goes up 450 and Tesla and Peloton, Fastly, Cloudflare, Zscaler, Twilio, Etsy, et cetera, are up the way they are, unlike in 99 when some of these companies were you know, didn't have really anything going on, is the pandemic and the way that our lives have potentially changed for not only the foreseeable future, but maybe forever. Well, I, I guess uh, we, we differ quite a bit there with the idea that our lives are going to be permanently changed because of the pandemic. We expect that uh, it will soon be safe again for people to be uh, outside, resuming normal activities, going on vacations, returning to office instead of working from home. And uh, our belief is that when you look out in a very long-term time horizon, like we do at Oakmark, not that much has changed. You know, we, we still think uh, you know, a company like Ally Financial, they're going to do car loans and they're going to be one of the leaders. Uh, those businesses will come back. In fact, you're already seeing their earnings come back nicely in this past quarter. And they are very, very cheap on what we believe are normal earnings. Now, did, did the pandemic pull forward some demand for the companies that you named? No question. But will they be able to uh, sustain a growth rate like they've had over the past year? over the next decade? I think that's really, really unlikely. Yeah. I mean, we're, look, we're, we're all trying to figure out you know, for, for example, you know, things like business, air travel, how long it's going to take to come back. You know, some of the CEOs that have been asked on our network about that very issue in the last couple of weeks or so, when you throw out the idea that, well, maybe it's going to be a decade before you get back to pre-COVID levels for air travel. It's not like they're fighting you uh, on that concept, which just brings me back to the Zoom idea of why that stock could continue to work for an awfully long time, even as you've pulled forward some of the demand. Uh, we've spent so much time on this conversation. I, I, I want to get to the stock that you did buy because it's interesting, and I want you to tell our viewers about it as the notable value investor that you are. Keurig Dr. Pepper, tell us why it was a new buy in the third quarter for you. Sure. Uh, Keurig Dr. Pepper is about a 50-50 split between soft drinks and coffee. It sells at about two-thirds the P.E. of Coke and Pepsi, which are both losing market share while the Dr. Pepper side of Keurig is gaining. It also sells at about two-thirds the multiple of Nestle. And Nestle owns Nespresso. Uh, most analysts think Nespresso is one of the best businesses inside of Nestle. And the Keurig side is growing just as fast as that. We don't think that multiple gap makes sense. We think private market values are... Uh, consistent with the valuations that we see Coke, Pepsi, and Nestle at. You, know, you saw the Duncan Brands acquisition today that was in the 30s times PE. Uh, half their business is coffee, so we think that's uh, an interesting comp for the Keurig side. There are a couple of bottling companies in Europe that also announced acquisitions. 
those multiples were consistent with the Coke and Pepsi multiples. We think bottling is uh, one of the the less exciting businesses inside the beverage side of Keurig Dr. Pepper. So we, we think the discount to the market's just unwarranted there. It's always good to catch up with you, Bill. Be safe. Enjoy the snow. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Bill Nigren, Oakmark, Thanks. joining us from Chicago. It's time for Futures Outlook now. Crude falling to a three-week low today. As coronavirus cases surge in the United States. Let's bring in Scott Nations for that trade. Scott, welcome back. I think it was, just, you know, last week I had somebody, maybe it was Jeff Kilberg, tell me why crude was going to, you know, break out of this range, maybe go in the, you know, more than mid 40s. Did you you saying the other 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 side of that now? Well, it's having a horrible day, Scott. I, new lockdowns. That's one thing Kilberg didn't know about last week. Uh, also, the fact we're not going to get any COVID relief. And this is the real surprise, Scott, because this was baked in. Some sort of additional COVID relief was baked in. So uh, demand is just horrible. And now supply is getting hit, too, because a Libyan export facility is completely open now. So I don't care if you're looking at demand or supply, horrible for crude oil. Uh, Scott, I want to be a seller of the December contract, $39 even. Target to the downside, 36 half, 36.50, just above the low in the first half of September. Stop, 39.75. 1,000 barrels per contract, so it's $1,000 uh, per point risking $750 to make $2,500 at those levels. Got you. We'll catch you soon. Busy day. Scott Nations, thank you. Coming up, we haven't forgotten about you. Unusual activity docs coming up, plus your final trades are next. Welcome back. All right, Doc, unusual activity. Got to make them fast today, Scott. Under Armour, 13 puts that expire this coming Friday. A lot of buyers of those. I'm in those, Scott. Also, K-Web. This is Chinese Internet stocks. They're buying the 69 puts in this one, Scott. I bought those as well with the stock about 71 a little bit ago. Don't do puts all that often, so I appreciate you bringing those to us, Doc. That's John Najarian. All right, Shan, final trade. Sure. What do you have for us? Adobe. All right, Adobe software. All right, uh, Farmer Jim. Cleveland Cliffs, great quarter reported last week. All right, Joey. GLD. John Najarian, back to you. Uh, run, R-U-N, it's Sun Run. I bought it during the show, Scott. Yeah, uh, market's running today, uh, not in the right direction, though. Right now, the Dow is down by 817 points. I know the exchange is going to pick up that story. They'll do that right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.